Good morning. Continuing through our study of the Gospel of Matthew, if you turn with me to Matthew chapter 6, please. Um, today, I've entitled this teaching, Confronting the Imposter Within. Confronting the Imposter Within, out of Matthew chapter 6, verses 1 through 18. And so let me read these texts, and then uh, we'll look at the, the heart behind it. And again, I'm going to not read the whole thing. I'm going to just highlight it. If you would just try to follow with me, I'll tell you where I'm at. Verse one, uh, verse 1, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by other Others, truly I say to you, they have received their reward. Verse 5. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. In verse 16. And when you fast... Do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. Father, we pray today in the name of Jesus that the Holy Spirit would speak to us, Lord, and teach us, instruct us, disciple us, that we might learn of Christ. And Lord, that we would learn of who we truly are as being in Christ. And the power of this new life that we live, the power of a life of a new creation, of this new humanity that we are on the earth today. And so we open our hearts to you and we thank you, Father, for the word of God in Jesus' name. Amen. So when we met as elders this week, we talk over lunch each week. Um, and uh, at least three of us are able to. Kevin obviously is not often to, able to do that, unfortunately, all of the time. But we uh, kind of bear our hearts with each other and talk about how we're feeling about things and how we sense what's going on in the church. And we talked for a, quite a while this week about just what we've been doing as we've been going through the book of Matthew and how we feel the church is hearing it and receiving it. And after last Sunday, Dean and I were sitting, talking after, right after the service, sitting right here in this room, and um, just wondering whether or not what I had said really had sunk into hearts. And we even were talking about the possibility of having a kind of a question and answer time this morning to discuss what I taught last week. And obviously, we're not doing that. Um, and one of the reasons why we are not doing it is because this week in our communitas, um, we had a discussion around the Word of God as we always do, and I came away with a sense that, in fact, what I did teach did sink in, and that it is sinking in to hearts just by the discussion that we had, which was really encouraging for me, because we are really jealous for what God is doing in us, for what God is doing in you. You know that as, as elders, we are shepherds, and our desire is to shepherd well the flock of God, and not just to be shepherding the flock for the sake of the flock, but for the sake of the lost, that the church would be what it's to be so that it is, as Dean has been teaching through the book of Revelation, that it would be a light, that the church would not lose its, 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 its witness, 
uh, in the, on the earth and in this city. And so that's why we're jealous. It's not just so that we would be faithful shepherds, as important as that is, but because there's a whole slew of people out there who do not know Jesus. And their only hope of knowing Jesus is through encountering him, oftentimes through the church, through the word of another man or a woman that they speak the gospel to them, uh, through friendships that, that are uh, engaged that it, with non-believers, and through the, pre- the preaching of the word in different times. So we are really jealous. And this whole teaching through the book of Matthew is a, is a, is a teaching that is uh, a heart's cry by us as leaders to, to say to, to the church, listen, we've been brought out of darkness and into light, and now there's a life that we are to live. And we must understand that life, but not just with our minds, but with our hearts. That there has to be a revelation of something that is greater than moralistic, therapeutic deism, which is really the religion of America today in Christianity. Moralism's do's and don'ts and trying to live this better life therapeutic, how you can be happy and wealthy and, and successful deism, just this God that's somewhere out there, but he's not really involved on a day-to-day basis in our life. Moralistic, therapeutic deism is the religion of America, for the most part, even what is called Christian. That's not Christianity. Christianity is the life of the, of the Spirit of God at work in the heart of a man or a woman. And it's the life of the age to come, as we've been teaching you, that has already come in the person of Christ. By the Spirit of God now indwelling those who are Christ followers. And so there is a clean break that has to be made in our minds and understanding between who we were and now who we are. And whether you were raised in the church, born into a Christian home, or you had a radical conversion experience, it doesn't matter. At some point... You had to put your faith in Christ. You may not know when it was, but you were regenerate. You were made new. You might have been a six-year-old child with your mom praying over you one evening. You might have been a 15-year-old teenager who had been rebellious, who finally believed even though you'd been taught from the time you were little. Or you might have been a 25-year-old crazy pot-smoking hippie who God encounters radically. It doesn't matter. But the moment that you put your faith in Christ, you became a new creation. And so what we're endeavoring to do is is to teach what this looks like, to live out. And it has to be practical, doesn't it? It can't just be this theory that we hold to. And so the Sermon on the Mount is this radical instruction of Jesus Christ to his disciples with multitudes listening. And I always like to think about the multitudes listening. It must have blown their minds even though, and it was blowing the minds of the disciples as well as he's teaching on this new life, this creation, this new creation life. And so in this text that we're looking at today, there are three disciplines that Jesus now is teaching his disciples regarding this new creation, three disciplines. And in fact, the word discipline, as we know very clearly, comes from the same root as the word what? Disciple. And the goal of being, a, 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 a being disciplined is to be trained to produce a specific character or pattern of behavior. We are disciples. We are learners of Christ. And so the Lord Jesus wants to train us just as he was training his disciples. Now he does it by his spirit. But we are today in the school of Christ, 
in the school of the Holy Spirit, being trained by the Spirit of God through the Word of God. And there are three disciplines that Jesus speaks to in this text that we read this morning, and they are very simply these, giving, praying, and fasting. Giving, praying, and fasting. Now what I want to do as I begin is once again say what I said last week in this sense, that we have to be very careful that when we hear the words of Christ, we don't do with them what we usually do, which is to add upon ourselves more sense of duty and obligation. When we hear these words, giving, praying, and fasting, we can easily turn them against ourselves as, a, as some sort of an ob- obligatory duty that we may not feel like we've ever measured up to. And now we're, now we're going to turn into another law that we're going to try to measure up to. So somehow we can please God and feel better about ourselves as good Christians. That's not what Jesus is saying What Jesus is speaking to in the whole Sermon on the Mount is the fruit of being made alive in Christ. It's the fruit of what is new. It's the fruit of the kingdom at work in the heart of a man or a woman. Are you with me here? And it's not complicated. It's very simple. Just as the Beatitudes are the blessings Matt taught us that are the fruit of of the new creation and of God's kingdom in our lives. They're the fruit. They're a blessing. And as I taught last week, that the greater love, a greater love, a more, a more, uh, a more selective, uh, just devoted love is the fruit of the kingdom that will overcome the six sins that Jesus spoke to last Sunday that we looked at of anger and lust and and unfaithfulness in marriage, and untruthfulness in the heart, and the love of self, the preservation of self, and the revenge that's in our hearts. Jesus confronted them. The fruit of the kingdom is a love that will overcome those by the Spirit of God. This is fruit. Today we're looking at fruit. We're looking at a byproduct of God at work in our hearts, and it but it's expressed in three areas that are crucial to the life of a believer. And Dean says this, and he said it again to us this week as we were having lunch. He says, why is it we always want to drag the old creation into the new, the old existence into this new life? We're always trying to drag and bring with us what we've been actually brought out of. We, we just, we're not comfortable somehow just leaving it behind and beginning anew. And that's just the way of, of humanity, it seems. But we need to make a clean break at some point in our hearts. And we need to truly believe, as Paul says in Galatians and in Colossians 1, that we have been rescued and delivered from the kingdom of darkness and we've been brought into the kingdom of light. And so I don't know about, I just, I pray for revelation that we would see these things by the Spirit of God because that's what it's going to take. Why is it so hard for us to live this life this way? Why is it so hard? Why are we so often combating what, we, what has been a, a prop, a mis, uh, uh, an improper understanding, even as we try to teach now a proper understanding? And I think it's because so often this has been taught wrongly from pulpits. I think so often we teach the Sermon on the Mount as, as, as though it's, it's more duty and responsibility and obligation that we have to try to now live out. 
rather than it's being the byproduct, the fruit of, of the kingdom life. Turn with me to Romans 6, please, verses 3 through 14, because I think Paul, and I referred to Romans last week, but I'll refer to it again today. And uh, this morning was again referred to as we began worship. Romans 6, 3 through 14. I think Paul, I know Paul, I don't think Paul, I know that Paul uh, took the words of Christ that he heard from uh, the Sermon on the Mount that he was very familiar with, I'm sure, from being, being told to him what the words of Christ were at this time. As he's beginning his ministry, he probably talked to the disciples and they told him, this is what Jesus said to us that day. These are the words of Christ. This is before the Gospels were even written. Paul has understanding of these words. And the Spirit of God begins to speak to him. What was the Lord Jesus saying that day? And so Paul gets this revelation, and it's of the grace of God, and it's of the life in Christ. And he says in chapter 6, verse 3, and I want to read a few verses in a row here. Romans 6, 3, Do you not know, do you not know, that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too, listen, might walk in newness of life. This is what Paul, he's speaking of the same thing that the Lord Jesus is speaking of throughout the Sermon on the Mount, a new life, the new living in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. And we know that our old, here it is, self, translated self, translated man, it's our identity as we were in Adam. It's our identity that is before Christ. It's the identity that is, that is the dead old man now. He says, we know that our old man was crucified with him in order that the body of sin power of sin at work within me might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. And we know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life, this is it, the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not, and here's practical, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions and do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will no longer have dominion over you. Theology. Doctrine. It's just doctrine. No, it's not. It's life. It's the practice of the Christian life. It's being united with Christ in faith and understanding the implications of being in Christ. And if you've been baptized, you confess that you understood that to some degree. That you are identifying with him to the degree that you identified with his death. 
and his burial and gloriously his resurrection to newness of, to newness of life. Say that with me, newness of life. And that's what we're teaching as we were going through Matthew, is we're teaching this newness of life. What does it look like? It is not duty. It is not the old man trying to change. It's not turning over a new leaf. It's not effort to stop doing something and start doing something else. It's identifying with the living God and the power of the Spirit at work within me and then believing and understanding the implications of that life at work within me. These basic lifestyles that that Jesus speaks to here are as necessary for a Christ follower as breathing, eating, and drinking are to the human being. These are necessary in the same way. This is, this, is what, this is what is the building block of life spiritually. And I know they're necessary because of how Jesus introduces them. Listen, he, three times he says before each of these different disciplines, he says, when, when you give, when you pray, and, boy, this is a hard one, when you fast. Not if, not in case, and not when the elders call it, but when you, when you give, when you pray, when you fast. And because these are so important to the Christian life, they are the most prone of all of worship. These are aspects of worship. These are so prone to being tarnished by the same religious hearts that Jesus addressed in the previous section. You see, what he's doing is he's speaking to the religious heart. He's speaking to the heart of religiosity. And there's nothing that will tarnish worship more than the religious heart and mind. And this is so important as we consider this new life that we have in Christ. And the problem with a religious heart of many different problems, but the greatest is the problem with the old man who tries to change himself. The, promise, the, pro, the problem with that old self that is now really dead, but we still try to foster somehow, is that it tends initially always, listen, toward self-glorification. Everything always becomes about self. What well, was intended to be towards God and worship of God, of his incredibly beautiful and glorious and holy being who has lovingly redeemed us becomes about me. And these are probably the greatest threat to the religious heart and mind in the sense that they become the most prone to tarnish because giving and praying and fasting, we do these if we are being dictated by the old man to be seen by men. Because they're seen as badges of spirituality. And a religious man wants to be seen as being spiritual. In fact, listen, even though he isn't. But the, the greater need, and this is what Jesus' message is, the greater need is to be seen by God and to be known by God. And if he sees, if only he sees, that is enough. That's enough.
That's enough for a heart who loves him. Three times Jesus speaks of the danger of being a hypocrite. He says in verse 2, when you give to the needy, don't sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do. In verse 5, regarding praying, when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. Three times. He says, who love to stand and be seen in the synagogues and on the street corners when they pray. Verse 16, when you fast, don't look gloomy like the hypocrites do when they disfigure their faces, when they they don't wash their face and they show that they're fasting through their outer appearance just to be seen. And we know that hypocrites were Greek actors who wore different masks to play various roles. Pretty, uh, uh, that's a pretty good analogy that, that Jesus is using here. Jesus is saying that's what the Pharisees are. They are play actors. They're actors wearing masks playing a role, pretending to be something they are not. And they were doing all of the right things for the wrong reasons. And as I said a minute ago, it's amazing how the heart, the heart's default, the heart of man, its default is towards self-glorification. And it will even take what is most holy and most precious and pervert it for the glory of itself. And I want to say, and this is the message this morning, and this is the message of Jesus, I believe, beware of the imposter within. I want to read a a portion from a book that I read a number of years ago that was recommended to me. I was going through a really, really, really difficult time in my life in ministry. I had gone through some very hard things. I was questioning everything about myself, uh, about what I was doing, about my calling, um, God was dealing with me very deeply. I, I did not have answers. I was confused. And a really good friend of mine came and spent the weekend with me, and he said, you know, read this book. And he suggested it to me, and I did. I bought it, and it was so powerful in what it ministered to me. And I want to just read a, a portion of it this morning. This section, he says, it begins with these words, Beware of the imposter." The false self, the false self, this is interesting, specializes in treacherous disguise. He's the lazy part of self, resisting the effort, asceticism, and the discipline that intimacy with God requires. He inspires rationalization such as, my work is my prayer. I'm too busy. Prayer can just be spontaneous. So I just pray when I'm moved by the Spirit. The false self's lame excuses allow us to maintain the status quo. Now, this, this false self is the term that he's using to describe it's, it's who we think we are, but we aren't really that. It's who we put out as being who we are. And it's amazing. He goes on to say, and I'm not going to read this part of it. He says, God doesn't know that self. We can come to God with this false self, and God looks at it, and he goes, I don't know that self. I know you. I know who you really are, don't you? And most of us would have to go, I don't think I do. Because I'm so used to projecting this other self, who I want to be, who I think people want me to be, who I hope to be, who I'm trying to be. He says the false self dreads being alone, knowing that if it would become silent within, it would discover itself to be nothing. 
it would be left with nothing but its own nothingness. And to the false self, which claims to be everything, such a discovery would be its undoing. Obviously, the imposter is antsy in prayer. He hungers for excitement. He craves some mood-altering experience. He's depressed when deprived of the spotlight. The false self is frustrated because he never hears God's voice. He cannot, since God sees no one there. Prayer is death to every identity that does not come from God. Let me read that again. Prayer is death to every identity that does not come from God. That's my phone. I'm so sorry. Prayer is death to every identity that does not come from God. The false self flees silence and solitude because they remind him of death. The imposter's frenetic lifestyle cannot bear the inspection of death because it confronts him with this unbearable truth. There is no substance underneath the things with which I am clothed. I am hollow and my structure of pleasures and ambitions has no foundation. I am objectified in them, but they are all destined by their very contingency to be destroyed. And when they are gone, there will be nothing left in me but my own nakedness and emptiness and hollowness to tell me that I am my own mistake. Doesn't that sound like the church of Laodicea's message from Christ? You say that you are rich and clothed with fine linen and blessed, but I look at you and I say, no, you are wretched and naked and poor because you have a false self that it's not really who you are that has become your identity. The imposture must be called out of hiding, accepted and embraced and seen for who he is. To acknowledge humbly that I often inhabit an unreal world that I have trivialized my relationship with God and that I am driven by vain ambition is the first blow in dismantling my glittering image. The honesty and willingness to stare down the false self dynamites the steel trapdoor, the steel trapdoor of self-deception. That's what Jesus is speaking to. He's speaking to self-deception. He's speaking to the, the power of, of humanity uh, and, and, and even and especially the religious, the religious heart is the most susceptible to this. Non-believers, you, you, you don't usually encounter a false self. You just get the real thing. That's why we're so put off by them. Because they swear, they say exactly what they think, and they do what they want. We just pretend we don't do those things, but they're really in our hearts. Not all of us and not hopefully to a great degree. But being honest, we would have to say, that's the problem. That's the problem of the religious mind. It's a matter of gaining an understanding and then living from our true identity as children of God. As those, listen, as those loved by God, as his chosen bride, those redeemed and rescued from darkness by our great Savior. And the remedy to confronting the imposter, Jesus says, listen, the remedy to being and, and, and to, the way to confront the imposter is to give in secret 
is to pray, not being need to be heard by anyone but God, and to fast in an unseen way. What a statement it is to give in secret. He says you're going to give in secret to such an extent that your right hand doesn't know what your left hand is doing. Is that possible? No. It's a, it's a hyperbole. It's, a, it's a, an extreme statement that Jesus is using to, to speak to the fact that we cannot give being self-aware. There can be no other motivation in giving other than doing it out of a heart of compassion or obedience to God and doing it as an act of worship to God. I've been finding myself, and I told Kath this recently, and, and please hear my heart in this. I've been finding myself giving to guys when I come to stoplights who are asking for money every time now. Now, I know, I'm not dumb, that probably a lot of them and maybe most of them and maybe even all of them are using it for things other than food. It might be wise for me to get my glove box full of Taco Bell or Carl's Jr. coupons and give them those. But I just found, and I believe it's the Spirit of God. I believe the Lord has been saying to me, give. Whatever they use it for, that's between them and me. You give. And I, I will, I've been, a guy the other day on the street asked me for five bucks to go catch a bus. Sure. No problem. Here, man. I don't have five. I give, you, give him ten. He looks at me like, wow. But it's just because of God. It's because the Lord, Matt taught on generosity. It's like I'm, I'm, I, I know. I know of my heart. I want to be free. And I'm telling it you today, not for myself. I'm using it as an example of what is the fruit in my life. It's the fruit of what God is doing it. And God forbid that it would become self-serving even as I say it. Lord, please. To be free of the need of ever being seen, of having self-promotion broken in our heart. Any self-promotion will tarnish our giving. The need for man's recognition is the only reward you will ever receive if it is your motive. And any reward that men can give is short-lived. The accolades of men are always short-lived. They can change in an instant, can't they? Giving frees us from the love of money. Giving frees us from the, from the need for self-dependency. It, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a worship that is an expression of freedom. Freedom from the love of money and freedom from self-dependency, of self-preservation. The idol of self. Paul writes to, first, to Timothy in 1 Timothy 6, he says, As for the rich, that's us, in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasures for themselves as a good foundation for the future. Listen, now I love this line, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. The riches that money, the, the joy that riches can bring is not what true life is. Yes, it's pleasurable. 
But the true life that we pursue is, is eternal. Fasting. Fasting is not to draw attention to oneself. Other people should not be able to tell when we're fasting. It's so easily tarnished as well by the religious heart. Fasting is always God-directed. And any benefit that we might receive from fasting, whether it's a health benefit or even the spiritual benefit, is only the byproduct of worship to God, of, of God being honored through our bodies. We fast because we know there is something greater and more important than food. We deny ourselves a very real need for a season to say to God, we believe in you. I believe in you, Lord, to the extent that I'm going to deny myself a physical need, that if I were to deny myself indefinitely, it would lead to certain death. But I'm willing to deny myself because I believe in something I cannot see that I know is true. And it's a confession that we need you, Lord. I need you more than I need food. And we desire you, and we desire your ways, your ways above our own. And so the Lord Jesus would say, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And when you pray, and I left this one to last, and I'm not going to go through the whole Lord's Prayer in depth today. Matt might want to tackle this in the weeks to come. But he speaks about prayer. And I left it last because prayer is the most intimate of the three areas that the Lord spoke to. Of giving and fasting, but prayer is the most intimate. And because it's the most intimate, it's the most vulnerable of the three to being perverted and tarnished by the religious heart. The warning from Jesus is against empty phrases and words that sound good but are just filling the airwaves with sound. The more words we use doesn't mean the prayer is any better or any more effective. The more flowery the words are doesn't make it more spiritual. To the degree that Jesus says, God knows your needs before you pray. So just speak simply to him. Now, as I was studying this, I was thinking about Paul, and I went through this with the guys on Monday night in the Ephesians class. The prayers of Paul that are written in the book, in the, in the book of Ephesians and in other places are so powerful, and they're so beautiful, and they're so deep. And you think, well, man, that sounds like it's a flowery, or that's not a simple prayer. Well, the difference is, is that Paul was under the unction of the Holy Spirit when he wrote those. He was under the unction of the Holy Spirit. He's praying by the Holy Spirit and he's writing this incredible, insightful revelation. And I've heard people pray with those types of prayers that are, there might be long prayers and they might be deep prayers, but I can tell it's the Spirit of God. But just praying with a lot of words. I was in Jordan, as you guys know, a few years ago and I'm hearing the call to worship come from the mosques throughout the day. And it's just these words over a loudspeaker being sung, being chanted repeatedly, repeatedly, repeatedly. You see, Allah, Allah cannot be known personally. Allah, the God they believe in, 
is a God that cannot be known personally. Though he, he has given revelation, they believe, which we know it's not from God. But he cannot be known like our God is known, like the true and living God is known. And so their prayers are what Jesus is describing here. It's the way the Gentiles pray, thinking they are heard by God by their many prayers. Jesus says, no. He says, the content of our prayer is this, our Father, our identity, our identity as the children of God, right? He's God is my Father. It's Abba. He is my Father. I am His child. Our Father in heaven. The reality of this life is one that is spiritual as well as physical. The spiritual is eternal. The physical is temporal. Our Father in heaven. I believe in something I cannot see. Hallowed be your name. We worship and serve a holy God, a a God set apart from this world, a transcendent God, the sovereign God, but a God who is Father. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This is the cry of the heart of the people of God. Your kingdom come, Lord. May your kingdom come in its fullness, Lord Jesus. May your will be done on the earth, Lord, as you've intended the earth to be what you created it to be. May your kingdom come, Lord. May your will be done. Father, Father, you are so loving. Father in heaven, you are holy and you are great. May your kingdom come, Lord. May your kingdom come to this earth. Give us this day our daily bread. This is simple. We trust you today for our lives. We trust you today for our provision. We trust you today for our most basic needs that you will care for us because you are a loving Father. And forgive us. Forgive us, Lord, our sins. Forgive us our debts, that which we, our offenses, that which we owe, in a sense, to others because of our hearts and to you. And just as we have been forgiven, we will forgive. Just as we have received mercy, we will give mercy. And this keeps my heart free to love and free to be loved. To to, to know that I'm forgiven and to be able to give forgiveness keeps my heart free to be loved and to love others. And lead us, Lord, not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. This is a difficult saying, lead us not into temptation. Of course, God wouldn't lead us into temptation. What is he saying? But Jesus is teaching the disciples that it's good to ask our Father to give us strength to resist sin and to protect us from the evil one because we can't forget we're in a war. Our Father, a loving God, this is how Jesus is teaching us to pray simply. And all of these things are addressing all of the the needs of our our lives. They're addressing the the cry that, that we have in our hearts for this kingdom It's addressing all of the things that we've been looking at that Jesus has been saying up to this point in the Sermon on the Mount. It's speaking of the new creation heart, the life of living a life on the earth as a child of God in living in obedience. Our Father, you are so good in heaven. You are holy. May your kingdom come, Lord. May your will be done here on this earth. Just as you are glorified in heaven, may you be glorified on the earth. Give me today, Lord. I trust you today for what I need. I trust you for my life, for my provision. And Father, forgive me again, for I am weak. 
And I need you, Lord. Cleanse me anew. And Lord, help me to forgive those who wrong me. Help me to, to walk the second mile. Help me to turn my cheek. Help me to love, Lord, as you have loved me. And by the grace of God within me, Lord, give me strength today that I would not sin, that I would be able to resist the temptation that will surely come my way. And Father, I pray in Jesus' name that you would keep me from the evil one, that you would guard my life, guard my family, guard my church from evil. Protect us, Father, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Stand with me, please.